When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn, and usually I'd be joined by Ann Thompson, but she is actually taking a vacation. It's a thing that she's doing. So I'm very happy that she's doing that because it gives me an excuse to bring in my longtime colleague, Kate Erbland, uh, executive editor for the film team. Kate, how you doing? How you holding up as we get to the last push of the summer season? I mean, it, it feels like we still have many more weeks to go because we do. And then we're right into fall festivals. It just never yeah, ends. Fun. <laughs> I always feel like the fall starts at the beginning of summer, which seems to start in the middle of spring now. So it's like there's no escape in some sense. Like when I go to Cannes, it's like basically the fall because no, there's no lull like at all. And it's <laughs> funny. I mean, I'm sure we'll be talking more about this in the coming days. But next week we're we're rolling out 80s week. And so that's something our David Ehrlich sort of cooked up as a way to give us some fun content in the doldrums of August. And they don't even exist anymore. Like I, I he's crazed putting it together. I think it'll be worth it, but yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice excuse to think about something else other than the, the on, on ramp of the, the fall news cycle. But yeah, you're right there. There isn't really an on ramp. So I took a break last week. I was off the grid in fire Island and didn't check a lot of news updates while I was there, which at this time of year is always kind of crazy because you come back and you just never know what might be happening. Knowing the strike was going on, of course, I assumed like that might slow some things down, but it certainly didn't slow down the festival announcements. So there's been TIFF updates. There's been New York Film Festival's main slate. Um, and this is a good opportunity, I think, to to go through some of that stuff because we've already heard from tiff on a bunch of stuff and and on the podcast we unwrapped a bunch of that you know like the miyazaki movie opening tiff and what does that mean and a bunch of gala films that are for sale and what does that mean now we have some of these smaller sections which i've always found to be kind of the most intriguing aspect of the tiff lineup because it's like some stuff that's already played at festivals and then some stuff that's like kind of low profile so what did you make of these lineups? Because in some ways it feels like it's a separate festival entirely. It's like not it's not obvious Oscar bait. It's not necessarily huge sales stuff, but there's a lot of potential that seems to be swimming around there. I mean, I think especially when you look at the platform section, like if you know anything about Toronto's platform section, the the people that they have shown movies from, I mean, Barry Jenkins is on the jury this year and they talk about Barry endlessly as they should because they really found him and championed him. And so when I'm looking at the Toronto lineup, I'm looking at platform and I'm thinking, who are these people? If we don't already know them, we need to know them because they're going to be someone and seeing names that we already know. And I think one of the the people I was most excited to see on there was uh, the director of Dream Scenario, who I cannot say his last name and everyone can make fun of me for that. Christopher we'll Borgoldi. Yeah. Yeah, we'll figure that out over the course of this podcast so I can mock Anne when she gets it wrong. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just like a pitch upon where it's a fackle, you know, I put it well, in that one. Like, you know, if you hear it enough, um, you can you can get it. It has right. a rhythm to it. <laughs> yes. So he's got this new film called called dream scenario it's an a24 film it stars nicholas cage um, but he had uh, another film out earlier this year that was 
so so funny and dry sort of like the the a new spin on worst person in the world that I think um, a lot of people didn't see and hopefully they will see now. Yeah, sick of myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's so- that great image of somebody in bandages smoking a cigarette. That's yeah. like pure cinema right there. Right. So um, I think A24 kind of smartly got in with him and they've given him, you know, it sounds like a bigger budget, obviously bigger names. And so yeah. that was the film that I was most excited to see in that that lineup. And the premise is so great that like Nicolas Cage is this like professor who suddenly shows up in the dreams of everybody in the world. It's like so ridiculous. Right. But it's also like really fascinating at this juncture because like 10 years ago, you know, Nicolas Cage shows up in a crazy premise for a movie. And it's like, who knows? He could have done it for like five dollars last week because he's like paying his taxes or whatever kind of financial burden he had a little while back. But now we're in a really interesting moment. Like I finally caught up with Renfeld uh, the other day and like movie's okay, but he really brings, it's a really good performance. I thought like he's sort of, you know, with pig and stuff like that, you see him like in this other state of confidence and as an actor in risky material, that's actually worth making for other reasons besides financial uh, purposes. And so it looks cool. I'm, I'm really curious about it. And of course, it's like a big A24 endeavor. So that's uh, that's great that they got that one. So what else stood out to you? Well, uh, another one that they announced a couple of days ago is the Closing Night film, which is always kind of like a weird, you know, space for any festival because, you know, a lot of people have left by the end. But this right. year they're doing a documentary called Sly. It's from Netflix. It's directed by Tom Zimney, who's obviously, you know, Bruce Springsteen's guy. And so I have a lot of affection there. But it's about Sylvester Stallone. And everything that people have said about it makes it sound like, no, it's pretty revelatory and it's going to go pretty deep. And I think if you know anything about Stallone's background, especially like the early years, writing Rocky, selling all of his stuff, I think he sold his dog at one point and people not wanting him to star in it. He has obviously been through a lot of struggles and is someone who is kind of on the upswing in an unexpected way. And so I really, I hope it delivers on that promise because I think there's a lot of rich material for for tom to mine out of sly did you watch that um schwarzenegger miniseries that netflix did i have not and i really want to because i think they're going to pair really well together i mean the thing is it's so authorized i mean like you couldn't even be more transparent about it like he had that really dopey um true lies knockoff with his the father daughter story at fubar which i couldn't even finish that's why they made it obviously on some level but and it's super authorized but like it's still like you could tell people were watching it like it's a water cooler conversation starter to have this inside look at a star from the 80s who so many people have different kinds of opinions about because through the lens of the movies and Stallone feels like he's in that bucket too and he's a filmmaker yeah. so there's another layer to that that I'm really curious about so yeah I trust I trust there'll be something there and it's again it's like probably like Netflix knows like if this is an award an awards movie maybe it still benefits from a festival bump in a, in that slot so that's a smart choice that somebody made there in theory uh, we have to talk about this opening midnight movie from Larry Charles called Dicks the Musical like what do you know about this thing besides the title i don't well i know sort of what it's about which i think everyone who who's read about it knows it's sort of like a adult spin on the parent trap Sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that involves like a lot of um, people we love. Like uh, I know Bone Yang's in it, but it's just, it's got one of those sort of confrontational headline titles that you will only see in in the midnight section at Toronto. And I can't imagine what 
that first premiere is going to be like. I mean, it's, yeah. it is a musical. I assume, um, being familiar with his work, that when he says dicks, there will be many dicks. Yeah, we <laughs> demand that of our contemporary cinema, after all. Yeah. It's uh, been deprived for so long. So, yeah, I'm curious about it. I mean, there's uh, you can never really tell with some of these titles, like if it's in midnight, like what was I've already forgotten the um, the Daniel Radcliffe movie that was uh, there last year. Oh, the and, Weird Al uh, one? The Weird Al one. See, it took him in, right? Like what was it called? Weird, right? It was called Weird, yeah. And this was on uh, what was it? Who was the distributor? It was somebody equally weird. Was it, uh, was it Hulu? No, it wasn't Hulu. It was um, uh, Red Redbox. What's the what's oh, the uh, company? Yes. Um, but 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 basically, like it's it was you know that's not it got some interesting reactions there, and I feel like the midnight crowd really got into the craziness of it. But you know, by the time that movie came, Roku. I'm sorry, Roku. Roku, it was Roku the Roku, Roku channel, Roku, whatever. Yeah, Roku distributed weird the Al Yankovic story, but like. The, the Midnight Madness buzz was like really good for this thing. And like it was not, you know, like widely embraced when it came out. And like we can't even remember what it was like a year later. So that's it's nominated for an Emmy. Yeah, but you couldn't remember. I mean, come on. The, the Emmys, when, whenever they happen, I mean. Yes, exactly. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> that a lot of people play. So and certainly like a lot of the stills of Daniel Radcliffe made the rounds and stuff. So it's like easy to remind people to exist, I suppose, in that respect. But in any case, I'm curious about. um about how this year's section stands out and sort of in parallel with the kind of higher profile TIFF stuff. But then we had New York Film Festival. So I always find New York Film Festival main slate to be really fascinating because it's like you're feeling sort of almost like it's like critics program this festival. You know, Dennis Lim was a critic for a long time. Justin Chang recently joined the selection committee, Austin Collins. So these are people who are really going for movies that they like. They're not making strategic decisions that factor in other variables the way that, you know, say a TIFF might, uh, because say a high profile sales title will play well in the room, even if it gets bad reviews or whatever. That's or the not really the status. way. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff doesn't factor in. So when you look at this stuff, it's like, yeah, I get why Yorgos Lanthimos' movie is there or like the new Vim vendors, which, you know, won a prize at Cannes, Alicia Walker. But I'm looking through the main slate and it's like a lot of the stuff that stands out to me is stuff that we haven't necessarily seen because it tells you something about the fact, you know, it's like they're not going for the premiere status, as you said. So the fact that it's in the lineup is sort of a, an indication of something that we weren't fully aware of yet. So what what, what was your, your sort of takeaway from some of the stuff that fell into that bucket? What was who is the the playwright? Is it Annie Barrett that everyone was like Annie Baker? Amy Baker, Annie, Annie Baker, where I don't, I'm not really like a theater person, although I did see Back to the Future, the stage musical last week. Um, oh but all of my theater friends were just like screaming on Twitter. They could not be more excited. It's called oh. Janet Planet. It looks great. It has a ton of people in it that we love. And so now all of a sudden, just based on the fact that people who would know her work and be excited about it are so excited, I'm excited. Yeah, I remember hearing about that a while back. I, in my column, I was writing about playwrights who work in movies and the other way around. And of course, she's a Pulitzer winner. And this is a first feature, but Dan Janvey, who did No Man's Land and a bunch of other stuff as a producer. So A24 is involved. It's got a lot of different things going for it. But yeah, that's a really good example. When you look at and you look at the still with um, Julian Nicholson and this kid, and it's like set in 1991, rural Massachusetts. Like there's something about like all these different aspects where you're like, yes, I'm totally there for this one. So yeah, that's a 
I'd say that's a really good example in that in that sense. Um, and then there's this film, uh, All of Us Strangers, from Andrew Hay, um, which uh, has been described by somebody I'm, I'm not sure who as uh, Weekend with Ghosts, which I think is a really great great sort of way in because of course Andrew Hay's Weekend is beloved by many people, and and uh, he was a co-creator of Looking, and you know one of the great queer directors working right now. So I was really intrigued by that one. It's got Paul Mezcal in it. Um, but then, you know, a lot of the other stuff is, is seems pretty big. I mean, you haven't had a chance, I guess, to see May, December yet. So folks who weren't at Cannes are going to get that opportunity. Uh, folks who aren't at Venice get to see Priscilla and then Ferrari's closing night. And then there is a bunch of stuff that was at Sundance or Cannes like Anatomy of a Fall, which won the Palm d'Or, that gets that that sort of added boost. Did you happen to see All Dirt Road's t- Taste of Salt? Out of, no, uh, I haven't seen it, but I know uh, Ryan Latanzio, who saw it and reviewed it for us at Sundance, was a, a big, big fan. And I think for a while there, it hadn't been dated. We didn't know where it was going to pop up in terms of at another festival or theatrically. And now it has a date and it's going to be at New York Film Festival. And just like it's one of these titles that you sort of mentioned, like I can't wait to catch up on. And for me, because it's in my hometown, maybe like I really want to see Anatomy of a Fall, but maybe I wait to see it at New York with the New York crowd. And that's like a really privileged place to be in. And but it makes me feel better about not going to yeah. Cannes and not going to Venice. Well, I think it's also it's a savvy move on the part of A24 again with this this movie, because I saw it. It's it's good. It's very much like experiential cinema. You know, it makes sense that Barry Jenkins would be involved with it. You know, it's a story of a black family over the course of a long period of time. And it's very much sort of like burrows inside their memories. So it's less narrative driven in that sense. And it's very much like an experience. But, you know, like Sundance is very much like a narrative focused festival and and stuff that's sort of outside the box doesn't always necessarily immediately resonate as much as like, you know, theater camp does or, you know, something that's like has like commercial viability. That's not a knock on theater camp, though. It's not, you know, like my kind of movie, but it's like it didn't get the rapturous response there and it didn't win Grand Jury Prize, you know, like it didn't have that Sundance moment. So this feels like a relaunch to me in a way because people like you get to come into it from a different angle at a different moment in the year. And it already has that New York Film Festival endorsement. There's like a context there that seems to make a big difference. Um, I don't know if you're following any of the buzz out of Locarno, but I'm really excited to see the new film by Radu Jude, this Romanian director I like called Do Not Expect Too Much from the End of the World. He made Looney Porn, uh, which was like a wild movie a couple years back. We Uh, do have a, a very enthusiastic review for it on the site. Um, it was something that was a huge priority for us. All I can say about based on what I have heard, I've been told by multiple people, Eric is going to love this. <laughs> I can't wait. So, to see it. Yeah, no, your, your brand is strong. Fan. I'm a big fan of Radu Jude going back to his movie, Everybody in the Family. I mean, it's, it's hard to pin down his style, but he always surprises people. And like, I live for that. You know, it's like. I don't want to be bored by like another square drawn. Like, yes, I'm excited to see Maestro, but like, unless it like reinvents the biopic in some right. radical way, I kind of know what that movie is. So, yes. you know, that's, that's sort of where I think that reaction is coming from. Um, speaking of Maestro, um, don't see it here. So I don't know what that means exactly if they wanted it and Netflix didn't want to give it to them or if maybe they it wasn't quite right for them. But it's, it's always fascinating to look at this 
lineup and wonder about the films that didn't make the cut that you're hearing about, you know, it's not like there aren't high profile mo- movies here. I mean, Ferrari with Adam driver, you know? So I'm curious um, what that means exactly. Um, but, you know, the other factor, obviously that all the companies are dealing with is a strike. Um, and uh, it sounds like while I was hanging out on a beach last Friday, there was some kind of meeting that happened with the WGA. Now, if it was a SAG meeting, I feel like it would have been much more exciting news because if the SAG strike ended and the WGA strike was still going on, like a lot of industry people would be relieved, even though, you know, it's a knock on the writing process, which is a key part of the process, because like you could still have a festival with actors promoting stuff or whatever. That hasn't happened. But also, like maybe if a WGA strike led to some progress, you could see progress for SAG. I don't know. Anyway. I'm sure you were tracking this much closer than I could have been from the beach on Friday. So what happened? Is there still a writer's strike going on or have I been just like oblivious for the past few days? Uh, so we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, which is day 100 of the writer's strike. So yes, the writer's strike is, is still going on. Um, it does not sound like the meeting went very well. It was one of these meetings where even in the days leading up to it, um, the WGA and the AMTMP were both sending out or, you know, sourcing different statements to various trades and other outlets that made it sound like they wanted to talk, but they weren't, they just weren't coming in on what seemed like a good footing, which seems to have been kind of an ongoing thing with this strike that, that people are saying things that are not, that maybe not that they shouldn't be saying them, but it's sort of Mm -hmm. leading to an elevated temperature in the room before, before the doors even open. And so, yeah, I mean, I think our headline was like, oh, they finally met for the first time in nearly three months and it didn't go so great, which is, uh, I think, the best way to put it. It didn't um, fix anything. I don't think it made anything worse. So that's something. But yeah, it's day 100. Yeah. So my understanding is like the media, yeah, which also day 100 means they've officially beat the record of the last strike 15 odd years ago. So, you know, we're, as as expected, we're in this for a long haul. It's like so weird to me that the emotions are so heated around this and yet they still think they can have a normal meeting to discuss resuming negotiations. Like if they're, if, so, I, you know, in reality, I did read a little bit of, of, of what went down and it seems like they were very much clear up front. Like if we resume negotiations, the AMTP will not negotiate some key factors like transparency around streaming residuals and, and, you know, changing something there. And it's like, well, why even have this call if they're, you know, they wouldn't be striking if, if this, if, if that was off the table, you know, if that was on the table to begin with. So it's like, to me, if I was a PTP, I'd be like, how do we lay out before any conversation some factors that will bring the writers back to the table because they're just wasting time. And, um, and I just want to say also, like, it still makes more sense to me uh, for these unions to be making deals with individual studios and not through a negotiating body that represents all of them. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I mean all that's the what you or are, I would do. Yeah. The studios are all, you know, so different. They're all in such different places. And then you factor in the streamers and it's like, no, it's, it's all, very different, different concerns. But as you mentioned, it is so weird to go into something being like, we're not talking about this. And we know that these are huge concerns for you and rightly so, but writers, no, no, don't even bother bringing that. It's just like, where, where do you think it's going to go? And how do you think the the writer's guild is going to react? 
Yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, I was thinking as, as you're talking about this, about like, like when you were writing about all these huge Netflix rom-coms, you know, that, that became like such a specific thing, Netflix resurrecting the rom-com, like the hidden factor and all that was that like writers were not profiting off of the success of that phenomenon. So it's like when you have a Netflix that can do that, can just say like, hey, here's a genre piece people used to love that isn't being made anymore. Let's bring it back and juice it up with our algorithm you know, that's a very specific model. Like you don't see Max doing that necessarily. Right. So it's like these deals should reflect the specific needs of different companies. And I don't see how you get them all into one place. Anyway, let's talk about other stuff. Cause like, this is just, you know, so open-ended and, and I think people get kind of bored of it after a while anyway, cause it's just no news is, is not good news at this point, but we still have a summer movie season, uh, TMNT, Unfortunately, I still have not had a chance to see. Um, I was surprised when you gave it a good review and then even more surprised to see that a lot of people did because like, it seems like it's been well-received. Um, and it made $43 million in opening weekend. So do you see this as something that has legs? I mean, Spider-Verse is obviously, it did really, really well. And it feels like a lot of the reactions to TMMT are seeing it somewhat in a, rela- in a related context. So I can't tell if that's like, a good thing or a bad thing? Like, is it sort of a lesser Spider-Verse kind of experience? Is it building on something that Spider-Verse has been able to do? Like, can you demystify that a little bit? No, I mean, I think it's building on on Spider-Verse in terms of, first of all, it looks very different than, you know, a Pixar film or, you know, something you might see involving the minions, whoever they are. I know who the minions are. I'm just kidding. But it, it has this sort of warm... Um, slightly hand-drawn feel. It's directed by Jeff Rowe, who wrote and and helped come up with the look and feel for Netflix's uh, Mitchell's versus Machines, which was another animated film that we all really loved. And it's just, you kind of see that same level of care. Um, I also found it really, really funny. And it's not just funny because it has, you know, turtle-based humor. It has this really funny running gag involving uh, Natasha, Natasha Bedingfield's Unwritten, which many of you may remember from Easy A. Um, but it's just, it, it's it's funny and it doesn't talk down to people and it is an origin story, but it kind of reorients their origin so that they're in a different starting place. Like they are teenagers, they're voiced by teenagers for the first time ever, which you actually really feel the difference. Like you, you know, like, oh, these are kids talking and their number yeah. one thing that they want is they don't want to fight crime and they don't want to like bring down baddies. They just want to go to high school which I found really adorable. And, you know, I had a great time with it. And I have a lot of friends who've gone to see it. Turtle fans, not turtle fans who liked it. They took their kids or they saw other kids there and they said the kids loved it and they thought it was really funny. So I think I was surprised by it and very, very pleasantly so. So, I mean, it it seems like it works for a couple of different demos and and generations, but the next stage of all this is going to be the awards conversation I mean, I remember when like Spider-Verse came out and it was like people were surprised that it was really good for a lot of reasons. And then, you know, when the New York Film Critics Circle gave an award, which we're both in and other critics groups and, and other awards started piling, it was very clear that this movie had a, a real path to Oscar through Oscar season. And then it won being the first superhero movie to really do that. So Spider, the second Spider-Verse is now obviously a contender and did really well. Um, and it's great. And I thought it was very 
mature. I mean, it's like you can be an older viewer and be very invested in the stakes of this movie, you know, even if you don't care about all the multiverse stuff, which it does feel a bit tiring to me after a while. Does TMNT pitch itself to that crowd? Like, can Academy members get into this idea of a franchise play alongside another one that's already in contention for this category? I think if there's any other franchise film that could break into the animated category, it's definitely it's the Turtles. Um, so I could see it being in there with Spider-Verse. I wouldn't, you know, Elemental has quietly made like a ton of money. And so I don't, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Pixar starts doing another push with that. And we see that in there. Um, so I think it could happen. And I wouldn't be hugely surprised if it did, because again, it looks great and it's really appealing. It's fun. And I do think it has appeal for all ages and generations, even, you know, some older Academy voters. Yeah. I, I used to watch the animated show when I would visit my family in Colombia. So I, initially I only knew them as Tortugas Ninjas. And then like when I saw it, like I saw like Ninja Turtle lunch boxes at school i'd be like oh you, you're into the tortugas ninjas too and people would be like the what like it was so weird like i was living in this bubble as a child where they were only this like latin american uh pop culture phenomenon <laughs> so it's like everybody is, they are a global phenomenon of a particular moment in time and it's really interesting how you can like see the way these brands like it's a barbie thing too like they play off nostalgia and awareness from childhood and then pitch themselves to you in that way too. So it's interesting to see. It's like if it does well commercially and the animation's really good and it's satisfying emotionally and all that stuff, then probably it does have that sort of impact in the industry as well, where it's like, oh, this was a really smart way to resurrect that franchise. So, all right, we got a few weeks left in the summer movie season, even if part of those weeks will also be the fall movie season. What do we have left? Is there anything worth talking about that's around the corner that you're excited to see maybe possibly. well there are a couple of things that i have already seen that are coming out in the last week of august um first of all there is bottoms which was a huge hit at south by it brings back the shiva baby team it's going to be out like i said the last week of august in limited release and then expanding in the first week of september it has been described as a female fight club but i also think that that doesn't quite indicate how weird it is it is deeply yeah. deeply weird and i mean that it's is also a- nothing like that movie like no it's a- yeah. <laughs> yeah totally just, yeah, just it's because like david it's- fincher or something yeah even though you know emma seligman is back directing and she wrote it uh with her star and shiva baby uh star rachel sanat it is it's totally different and I think it really shows their range. There is like a sweetness to it because it is at its heart about the power of female friendship, uh, which I think is really important to them. They're also best friends in real life. And I think you see that in this incredibly weird, violent fight club-esque job breaker-ish comedy that I hope a lot of people see because I really enjoyed it. And I think it would be great with a crowd. I watched it at home on a link and I laughed myself silly. Yeah, it is very funny. I mean, Rachel Sanat, has such a great screen presence because like she see she's sort of like she's petite and she's she's uh, she sort of plays plays off of your expectations of her and then surprises you and Shiva Baby kind of tapped into that but I felt like this one you see it like blossoming like even something like the Idol which is like you know I will not hijack this conversation to talk about the Idol except to say that like she really pierces the kind of grim 
unnerving mood of that show. Like she's she's funny even under those circumstances that that show puts out that are supposed to make you really uncomfortable. And that's like a really specific thing about her talent. I'm curious about Strays. I know um, some people are going to see that soon. Um, if and whether or not like a bunch of foul mouthed dogs can sort of you know attract people to go see the movies. Like no hard feelings. I think a lot of us were skeptical about movie was okay. Um, and it was sort of testing the boundaries of movie stardom to attract an audience, I think, but it did, it did, it did better than expected. And so I wonder with stuff like this, it's like strays looks so ridiculous. Like I, there's a big billboard of it near my house. And every time I see it, I'm like, do people see that and say, I want to go see that. But now that we are on the other side of Barmanheimer, you know, I wonder if it's like, you know, Meg two did well, TMNT, like we're seeing real results where it seems like movie going is becoming a habit. And, you know, maybe stuff that just looks like it's fun is worth going to, even if it's not an Oppenheimer level masterpiece or a Barbie level kind of, you know, joyride. So I'm very curious about that in in, in that respect. Um, well, before we wrap, I just want to acknowledge um, that we lost William Friedkin this past week. We had some really good stories on the site about him. Do you have a, a favorite William Friedkin movie of any sort? I mean, so I'm going to I'm going to just sell myself out right now. I watched Sorcerer last night. I had not seen it. I had obviously only heard good things. I had certain images in my head and I really, really enjoyed it. And it was somehow I knew a lot, but it was different than what I was expecting. So I know a lot of people have been talking about Sorcerer in terms of, you know, uh, work that he did after, you know, French Connection and Exorcist and you know, I, I know there was a lot of talk about, oh, he went on a downswing. His There was the New York Times obituary, which kind of, you know, leaned on that, which was weird. And it's it's great. It's it's completely unexpected. And again, something I watched at home on the TV, and there are certain scenes where I was just like, so you get so tense. Yeah, it's so good. It's uh, the filmmaking is so, I mean, and it's so different than like Exorcist, which he made a few years earlier. You know, he didn't just become the horror guy. And mm-hmm. I had the luxury of speaking to him at the Lyon, uh, Lumiere Festival in Lyon a few years ago. And I remember asked, and he, he said he didn't watch any of the other Exorcist movies because he was like, why would I do that? I have all these other movies that I'm making. Like, I didn't make those sequels. He had no real investment in this idea of franchise filmmaking, like even though Exorcist was hugely successful, that was just an excuse for him to, to do other stuff that was incredibly ambitious. And it's such an amazing run. Like if you look at movies like Killer Joe or Bug, like on a small scale, he was doing really intense, unnerving stuff at a very advanced stage of life when most American directors just give up because they can't get any resources. Um, And all these stories about him being like a jerk to people, I think are really exaggerated because like he was just trying to get real as far as I can tell. Like I got a chance to interview him when cruising was remastered. Like cruising is a wild movie. Like if you made it today, it would be a crazy movie. It's crazy that they got it done then, you know, like the, the whole like Al Pacino and a gay leather bar concept is like so loaded culturally, but like, I remember asking him something like when you look back on this, like, did you did you think it would it would um, work as as well as uh, as it ended up working? I, I think the movie's quite good. And he's like, well, what if I told you I thought it was going to be a big piece of shit and I was going to and I decided to do it anyway. And like that was like the, the way the conversation started. And I was like, OK, like no stupid questions, you know, like right. he just doesn't waste time. You see like Guillermo del Toro tweeting about the Kane Mutant, Kane Mutiny movie that's going to Venice. It'll be his last film. And he was hanging out there and that like 
Friedkin was actually very generous with people. He just didn't want to do more than one take usually because he didn't want to waste time. And I feel like that kind of approach is, is, is you know, we just need more no-nonsense truth tellers in this industry because <laughs> yeah. everybody's so afraid to say what they think. So that's like a, an important part of the legacy, I think, worth noting as well. Um, well, thank you, Kate, for for stepping in and, and talking through all this stuff. We'll definitely make sure to uh, find a, a way to have you back on soon enough. And of course, I will see you around as we get further through the last push of this season. So hang in there. We'll get there one way or the other. Thanks, Eric. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.